Ecclesiastes chapter 6, where we left off, beginning in verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Whatever one is, he's been named already. For it is known that he is man and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? In chapter six of the book of Ecclesiastes, the author contemplates riches without satisfaction in verses one through six. And now the author is considering or contemplating working without satisfaction in verses seven through nine. And then he's going to end the chapter with a pro with a series of problem questions which apparently have no answer. And so Solomon will bring to light the futility of substituting a job for spiritual satisfaction in verse seven. Or the idea that somehow your mind can replace your heart in verse 8. Or that your dreams can serve as a substitute or a satisfying substitute for reality in verse 9. In the end, God has predestined or ordained life as he intended according to verse 10. It makes no sense to argue with God. Or contend with your creator in verses 11 and 12. God is in control in the beginning. And God is in control in the middle. And God is in control in the end in verse 12. And so we begin our study. Working to live and living to work. Look again at verse 7. It says... All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Earlier, in an earlier study, we asked and answered the question, why do you work? Well, we work to get a paycheck. And why do you want a paycheck? It's so that you can buy food. It's so that you can cover your nakedness. It's so that you can pay the bills. In other words, everything that you do, as far as that goes... Why do you breathe the air? It's to sustain life. Why do you eat food? It's to sustain your life. Why do you even want to live? Why do you want to sustain life? Then so he says all the labor of man is for his mouth. And yet the soul, the word is nephish, is not satisfied. How is it possible that we can continue to feed our body but never satisfy our soul? And so he's asking a question. Solomon understands 
that we live in a world, but we sometimes substitute life by what we call a living. As a matter of fact, when you meet someone, typically you might ask, hey, what's your name? The very next question is usually, what do you do? What is it that you do? And the reason why we typically ask that question is, you know, that's the polite form of conversation. But really, we begin to ask and answer the question of who we are and what we do. Often we begin to define our lives by what we do. And so if a person says, I work here or I do that, that you can typically begin to understand if a person is a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, a person might be a professional athlete. I know that LeBron James recently signed for 40 plus million dollars. Troy Tulowitzki just signed an eight year contract. Was it 100 million or thereabouts for over the next eight years? Tim Tebow is rumored to be have a contract worth about 15 million dollars. It's my understanding that the highest paid athlete in the world is Tiger Wood. And it isn't just simply for playing golf. It's for all of the endorsements that he received. Another golfer, Phil Mickelson, I think, makes upwards of 40 million dollars. In golf tournaments. Most of us are willing to concede that we are more than what we do. But some of us live under the constant pressure that we might in fact be what we do. According to Aniki.com, that's A-N-E-K-I, it covers records and, uh, and um, listings, rankings. According to Aniki.com, the five countries with the highest rate of unemployment, Jubati, 59%, Zambia, 50%, Senegal, 48%, Lesotho, 45%, Nepal, 42%. All of a sudden, 9% looks pretty good when you compare it to many of the people in the rest of the world. Do you realize that 3 billion people who live on the planet Earth live on less than $2 per day? Work translates to food. It translates to clothing. It translates to shelter. And so for many people, you can imagine that their life and their work is defined by their work. And by the way, when we ask and we ask, when we ask and answer the question, what is a Christian's way of looking at work? Remember, God certainly has given us an opportunity to work and we thank God for the ability to work. But your work should never become a substitute for a right relationship with God or loving the Lord. You'll remember in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, it says, Jesus said, When he was asked about what the greatest commandment was, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The reality is that for some of us, we inherently begin to substitute the priorities of our life 
And we often push work to the very top of the list. You know, I counted a privilege to be able to pray and prepare and deliver messages. But guess what? You might think that the person least likely to fall into the trap of misplaced priorities is the minister or the full time Christian worker. But nothing could be further from the truth. You see, there comes a point in a pastor's life where he can open up the Bible, where he is given sermon after sermon and speech after speech so that it becomes mechanical for him. That Christian work becomes just a part of your job. But the reality is we were never, ever supposed to substitute worship and prayer for work. You know, it's possible to prepare a Bible study. It's possible to lead a worship service and you never worship yourself. You never come to that place where you're recognizing and realizing that it's the God of the universe that you're giving thanks and praise to. People will often say, well, you know, I'm in a difficult time in my career right now. Of course you are. Where are you at? Well, it's the beginning of my career. Is that a difficult time? Yeah. What about the middle of your career? Is that a difficult time? What about the end of your career? Is that a difficult time? You see, we can constantly find excuses for pushing work to the front and pushing worship to the back. In verse eight, he writes, For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have? Who knows how to walk before the living? Let's attempt to answer Solomon's question. What more has the wise man than the fool? You know, on the surface, you would think, why wisdom, of course. We think that wisdom is better than foolishness. And that seems to make sense. But I think that what Solomon is talking about Isn't a wise man's wisdom simply, but it is human wisdom. It's the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. Remember, in the Bible, a fool is a person who's void of judgment. A fool isn't simply a stupid person or a person who doesn't know the answer. A fool is not the person who is watching. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? And then you lose on every question. That's not really what he's talking about. He's talking about the person who's void of judgment. The Bible speaks of a wisdom that's from above and a wisdom that's from down below. The Bible says that wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle. And that wisdom from below is foolish and and dark and devilish. The Bible teaches that the wisest human being, apart from a right relationship with God, has no ultimate advantage over the fool. When both have wisdom that's rooted and grounded in the foolishness of men. Earlier this week, I was doing some research. I I was coming across some hoaxes throughout history. And one of the greatest hoaxes took place at the turn of the century. A group of people were digging in, in, um, in Europe, and they uncovered part of a human skull. They uncovered the jawbone of an orangutan and the tooth of a pig. And of course... 
Darwin's theory and evolutionary precepts began to proliferate. Eight people wrote doctoral dissertations on this one particular find. The reality wasn't so much the, the, the fact that it was a hoax. It was the reality that it lasted for so long. Ten years turned into 20 years and 30 years turned into 40 years. One of the one of the, the leading scientists in Europe devoted 30 years of his life and his professional inquiry into the evolutionary construct concerning this being the missing link. But it had nothing to do with his head. It had everything to do with his heart. He wanted to believe that the Bible wasn't true and that evolution was true because the moment you can believe that the evolutionary construct is true and that what the Bible has to say is not true, then you don't have to consider the claims of God or the consider, consider the claims of Christ. But the reality is that the unbeliever isn't the only person who is subject to this kind of foolishness. We've all heard the expression, a fool and his money are soon elected. I was going to say elected. But I think you're right. I think a fool and his money are soon parted. But what's right about that is the fact that a fool can get money to begin with. What does the poor man have? Who knows how to walk before the living? In other words, what does the poor man get for living an upright life? That's part of what Solomon is, is asking. Think about what's, what's being said. Is there a real benefit for doing what's right instead of doing what's wrong? You know what Solomon's answer is? In the, the end, we don't know for sure. Is it possible that a person could do what's right every single time and a person could do what's wrong every single time? And that the consequences, at least from a human perspective, means that if you do what's right every single time, are you going to be rewarded? Not necessarily. The person may be better off, but the person may not be better off. That's Solomon's point. In verse 9, it says, better in the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire this also is vanity and grasping for the wind in verse nine. We might paraphrase this verse. It's better to be content with what you see than to let your desires wander to what others may have. As a matter of fact, this is sort of a reiteration of what he's already said in chapter four, verse four. Again, I say that. For all the toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind to try and keep up with the Jones or whoever your neighbor's last name happens to be. You've all heard the expression of how foolish and what a waste of time it is. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. What does Solomon believe that work is empty or meaningless? I don't think so. I think what Solomon is getting at is that work can't satisfy the soul. Your mind can't replace your heart. And now your dreams can't replace reality. Solomon contrasts the vanity of living in a dream world or a fantasy world versus living in the real world. You know, you've all heard the expression. It's better to have one in the hand than two in the bush. Okay. 
What would you rather have? A hot, juicy, sizzling steak from Ruth Christie's, but it's all in your imagination. An imaginary, succulent steak or a quarter pounder from McDonald's in real life. See, some of you are thinking, I don't want a quarter pounder under any circumstances. Hey, the reality is you would be surprised what you would eat if you were hungry enough. The reality is that dreams and wishes don't feed you. And that's part of the point that he's making. Solomon is contrasting the vanity of living in a world of fantasy versus living in the real world. Now, it's very, very important that you understand something. And that is, I think that the world needs visionaries. And I think that the world needs dreamers. There is a place for visions and there is a place for dreams. There is a place to imagine A world that's different from the world in which we're living in. But the writer Solomon elsewhere in Proverbs chapter 28 verse 19 says, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. In the end, you can dream about having a farm. You can dream about planting the seed. You can dream about harvesting the crop. Crop, But in the end, at some point, do you have to purchase the land? Do you have to till the land? Do you have to sow the land? Do you have to harvest the land? That's part of what he is saying. Have you ever met someone? Or maybe even it's you. That you are part of that group called the get rich quick people. Have you ever met someone who always thought that their dreams or their future was just around the corner? Have you ever met someone who played the lotto every single day because they heard the message, you can't win if you don't play? And so they play every day and they dream. They dream about about striking it rich. And so. That's part of the point that I think he's making. He's making that a person who has a constant preoccupation with dreams, who never settles into reality, is going to face a difficult hardship. One of the things that I would point out is if you begin sentences with, well, I'll begin serving God or I'll begin obeying God when and then fill in the blank. When I leave this relationship, when I enter into a new one, when I get the right job, when this goes away or that goes away. In other words, you're constantly forever, forever wandering away from what God would have for you. If you're constantly waiting for the next chapter in your life, the next promotion, the next raise, the next assignment, the next transfer. Then you're probably one of those people that Solomon is talking about. Your desires wander you drift and you go from place to place and person to person because you're looking for that one thing that will satisfy your mind or satisfy your heart it could manifest itself in the relationships that you have it could even manifest itself in the church that you go to 
So many people I know go from event to event and church to church and big deal to big deal. And if you think that you could never be fooled or never be taken in by a hoax or never be taken in by a fraud. I want you to ask yourself this question. Has anyone ever said anything to you? And it sounded too good to be true. But there was something inside of you that wanted it to be true so bad. And so you believed them. And it wasn't true. I read about another hoax. It was called the Cardiff Giant. It's one of the most famous hoaxes in all of American history. This was a three meter statue. It was ten feet petrified body of what appeared to be a human being. It was discovered in 1869 by a team of workers digging a well behind the home of William Newell in Cardiff, New York. And so it was called the Cardiff Giant. As it turns out, the giant was the creation of a New Yorker named George Hull. He was an atheist who decided to play a big fat joke on his fundamentalist minister friend named Mr. Turk. Who believed that the Bible told of literal giants who roamed the earth. And the giant became so popular that P.T. Barnum offered $60,000 for a three-month lease of it. It He was turned down, (laughs) so he ordered a replica made so he could put it on display. And when his replica became more popular than the original, the owner of the authentic fake tried to sue Barnum. And the judge threw the lawsuit out, stating that unless the original could be proven real, there was nothing wrong with Barnum producing his own fake. You know, I think that that's what people really wonder. They wonder where the truth begins and the lies Begin. And so. Solomon asks questions which don't appear to have any answers. Look at what it says in verse 10. Whatever one is, he's been named already for it is known that he is man and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Another translation of verses 10 through 12 reads this way. Whatever exists has already been named. And what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun After he is gone, who indeed Solomon raises a series of questions that most people are too afraid to ask. Most people will rarely bother to ask when I get what I want, will it be good for me? When I get what I want, will it be good for me? Have you ever asked for something and it really wasn't good for you? Can you imagine praying a prayer? 
Oh, Lord, if she would just go out with me, all my dreams would come true. I would have a rich, fulfilling, full life. Oh, Lord, if she would just marry me, all my dreams would come true. Is it possible that the same person who prays that prayer would say, Lord, if I could just get rid of her. It was such a big mistake. I had no idea. I've told you guys the story of this girl that I fell in love with in high school. And I used to cry myself to sleep at night thinking, oh, God, why doesn't she love me? Why doesn't she care about me? Why? Why won't she love me the way I love her? And then at my reunion, I went back and. (laughs) You just look at her and you just go, thank you, Jesus. I'm sure she was thinking the same thing about me. Oh, God, thank God I turned. Teresi, what a loser. But you understand the point. The point that you might be thinking is, how do you know that everything that you so desperately desire is in fact what is going to be the best thing for you? When I get what I want, when I know what I want to know, will it be good for me? Will it have have been worth the cost? Maybe down the road. You might come up short and you might say, what I thought I needed isn't exactly what I really did need. So here's the big question. Who knows what's best for you? According to the Bible, the answer is God knows what's best for you. See, you might think that the best thing for you is to be wealthy. But God says, no, the best thing for you is to have a godly character. You might think that the best thing for you is to have a boatload of money. But what God thinks that you really need is faith. And hope. And love. Do you really know what's best for you? Clearly, here's what he says, for whatever one is, he's been named already, for it is known that he is man. Clearly, God knows that you're a human being. That you are a human being with all of the frailty of what it means to be a human being. Human beings are exactly that. They are nothing more. They are nothing less. But what Solomon is asking Is perhaps an even more important question. Even though you're human. Is it possible that you can fundamentally change? Is there something inside of you that can literally turn around and change? You know, as we look out over the grand creation and we see the mountains and we see the seas, we look at an eagle soaring or we see a horse galloping and we say that eagle was made to fly and that horse was made to run. What were you made for? What were you designed for? What is it? What is the real reason behind your existence? And according to the Bible, the real reason behind your existence is you were made to be loved by God and you were made to love God. 
And because you were made to be loved by God and because you were made to love God, sometimes it's possible for you to take those affections that God has has placed inside of you, the motivations that God has placed inside of you and the passions that God has placed inside of you and to misdirect those things. Warren Wiersbe writes, and I agree Thus far, Solomon has said that life is a dead end street for two kinds of people. Those who have riches, but no enjoyment. Those who labor, but have no satisfaction. But he has tried to point out that true happiness is not the automatic result of making a good living. It is the blessed byproduct of making a good life. And there's the key. It isn't making a living. But it's making a life. Anyone can make a living. But it takes a real art to make a life. It's anybody can live in a house. But it takes a different kind of heart to make that house a home. So does the Christian pursue happiness Or does the Christian pursue God's will, God's plan? Here's what the Bible says. That if you will pursue God's plan, and if you will pursue God's will, the byproduct of obeying God and pursuing God and obeying God is happiness. Remember, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Joy is internal. Happiness is external. Solomon may not be limiting the contention to other human beings when he says, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Clearly, in the real world, (laughs) there's always somebody who's stronger than you. There's always someone who's a little bit faster on the draw. But I think that what he's making reference to is the true and the living God. Here's the question that he's asking. Who can fight against God? And you know what the right answer is? Each and every one of us. We can resist God. We can rebel against God. We can disobey God. By the way, as you resist God and as you rebel against God and as you disobey God, is God in the end going to have his way no matter what you decide to do? That's the answer. It is possible for us to resist and rebel and disobey But here's Solomon's point. It doesn't make sense to fight with God. It doesn't make sense to fight with God. The first person who asked that question in the Bible was Job. Can a man contend with God? The answer is no. Can a human being fight against God? The answer is no. Jonah had his own set of circumstances when God asked him to go and minister to the Ninevites and proclaim judgment to them that within 40 days there was going to be judgment unless they unless they repented of their sin and they they turned to God. And Jonah knew what kind of a God God is. That if they would obey, that he would have mercy and grace. And that's exactly what happened. And Jonah got mad. But let me just tell you something. It's three small words. But I hope you never forget them. God always wins. 
It bears repeating, doesn't it? God always wins. Superficially, it may not look that way. In a brief moment, in a brief span of time, you may kick and you may scream and you may resist. And as I was reading this, I was thinking about how Solomon would do well to take his own advice. What does it mean to contend with God or fight with God? Whatever else it means, it means to resist God's plan. It means to present to God a plan other than his plan. And ultimately, his plan has always been to love you. His plan has always been to forgive you. His plan has always been to reconcile you. His plan has always been to create an environment where you could love him and he could love you. Since God's plans are perfect and our plans are less than perfect. It seems to make sense to trust God's plan. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis wrote to argue with God is to argue with the very power that makes it possible to argue at all. I love that. The very fact that you can open your mouth is because God gave you a mouth. The very fact that you could think with your brain is because God gave you a brain. The very fact that you could resist with your will is the fact that God gave you a will. Every molecule in your body, every organ in your body, everything that comprises you was given to you by God. In one verse, Solomon reminds us all, God is sovereign. But he, the moment that he reminds us that God is sovereign, he reminds us of something else. We are not. God is sovereign. We are not. Arguing with God, contending with God, fighting with God is a waste of time. God will do exactly as he pleases. It may not seem that revolutionary to you. But let me help you with something. The moment that you truly believe with your mind and with your heart that God is sovereign, you are not, and he will do as he pleases, it will liberate you. The moment that you really believe that, then guess what? You no longer have to cry or whine or complain about your circumstances. Remember, when the light is red for you, it's green for somebody else. And the truth is, the moment that you begin to realize that your life isn't just a series of catastrophes. Your life isn't just a series of crises. Your, your life isn't just a series of uncontrollable circumstances. The moment you begin to realize, no, there is a God in control. No, there is a God who is sovereign. No, there is a God who is watching all things. Then it gives you the liberty and the freedom to trust him. Or you won't trust him. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, it says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will. In the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, 
What hast thou done? It was his way of saying no one in their right mind can stop what God has planned to do. And no one in their right mind can look God in the face and say, what were you thinking? In Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Since there are many things that increase vanity. Remember what the word vanity means. Empty, meaningless, purposeless, no value. Since there are many things that increase meaninglessness, emptiness, no value. How is man the better? Here's your assignment. And you don't have to do it right now. But you should probably make either a mental note or a physical note. It's to write down this question. What are the things that increase vanity? What is it that makes meaninglessness, fruitlessness? What is it that makes these things increase? I'm going to give you, like every good teacher does, A little bit of a cheat sheet and something to put at the top of the list. At the top of the list, you should write the word pride. And as you write the word pride at the top of the list, what are the things that increase vanity? But why do you suppose that it is that pride increases vanity? Because it stands in direct opposition to the plan of God, the purpose of God, the glory of God. And all that God has ordained. God has ordained that he gets the glory. God has ordained that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God has ordained that all of life and all of human history and everything that surrounds life and everything that surrounds human history is going to find its ultimate fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it might come as a shock and a surprise to you, but it's not going to find its culmination and fulfillment in you. Because you were not created for the purpose of all creation being drawn to you. You were created so that you would be drawn to the creator. What are the things that increase vanity? I'm going to give you a simple, short Answer. And that is anything that neglects, distorts, or dissuades you from knowing, loving, and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verse 12. For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Here's what the Bible seems to teach. We appear on the planet Earth for a very short time. Here's what the Bible seems to teach. That we don't really know what's best for us. That God knows what's best for us. And when you pray, Lord, this is what's best for me, at least for my limited circumstances. But are you willing to pray what Jesus prayed? Nevertheless, not my will. How's the rest of it go? But thy will be done. 
You see, the moment that you can actually pray that and mean that, God will actually honor that prayer. The moment that you say, you know what, God, I think I know what's best for me. But I'm willing to concede that I don't necessarily know what's best for me and that you do. As a matter of fact. When when you think about it in Psalm 102, verse 11, the psalmist writes, my days are like a shadow that lengthens and I wither away like the grass. The psalmist says that our lives and our appearance on the planet is like a day. A very short day, by the way. And all of a sudden, it's the morning of your life. And then all of a sudden, it's noontime. And then all of a sudden, it's the afternoon. And then all of a sudden, the sun sets, your hair turns gray, and the evening comes. It's not even a long day. When he asks the question, who can tell us what life will be like after we're all gone? You know what the right answer is? No one and someone. What do you mean by that? No one human can tell you. They may claim to be able to tell the future. You may have searched the papers and looked at horoscopes and and fantasized about knowing the future. But the reality is only one person unconditionally knows the future. And that person is God. But when you look at the passage, look what it says in its context. Who can tell a man what will happen after him? Under the sun. Remember what Solomon is doing. He's writing from a human perspective, from from mankind's perspective. When he adds those words, clearly Solomon isn't talking about heaven or hell. He's talking about life under the sun. Does the Bible speak of a heaven? Yes, it does. Does the Bible speak of a hell? Yes, it does. Is a heaven... A part of some people's future. We thank God that the answer is yes. Is there a future apart from God and Christ in eternity? The Bible seems to indicate that the answer is yes. But from a human perspective. Life in the here and now. It's impossible to tell what will happen. Most people believe that wealth brings advantages. But does it? Really? At the end of the book, in chapter 12, verse 13, Solomon concludes, Fear God. Keep his commandments. But now, Solomon teases us with the question that we're hard-pressed to answer. What does Solomon conclude about the person who's a skeptic or an agnostic Or an unbeliever. What does Solomon conclude for the believer? For the believer, we're in the hands of God who orchestrates all things according to his wisdom and his love. For the unbeliever, remember what the unbeliever is. There's a reason why the unbeliever is called the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, they may or not may or may not believe in a God. They may or may not believe that they can fall into their father's arms. You see, the unbeliever is faced with a dilemma. The unbeliever who reads Solomon's words 
and reads the truth about what Solomon says, who is willing to concede that once I'm dead, I can't know what's going to happen after me. Comes to a conclusion. And the conclusion is, how do I judge my life? How do I make sense of my life? How do I bring significance and meaning to my life? And we're back to square one again. There is no meaning apart from God. So what about the person who trusts God? What about the person who trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? In Psalm 84, verse 11, the psalmist wrote, no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. What is God willing to give you? Everything in Christ. Everything. Love, friendship, fellowship, relationship, a future. And guess what? A plan. You see, for the believer, we have a father who knows best and we have a savior who knows best. You see, Solomon isn't just simply asking the question anymore. Now he's begging. Is life futile? Apart from God, yes. Is the future Knowable in Christ, yes. David Jeremiah writes, and again, I love this. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And that is enough. It ends every argument or objection we can pose. And coming to the end of all questions, we can only bow before the one with all the answers. Praise God for knowing him is better than knowing the answers. And guess what? Some of you might still say, I still want to know the answer. And here's what I'm willing to say to you. Get used to being disappointed. The reality is, I think that there are answers to many, many questions. But there are some answers that await a time when you will fully and finally present or be present before the true and the living God. But I love that. Praise God for knowing him is better than knowing the answers. I got to tell you something. I had lots and lots and lots of questions before I became a Christian. And I'd be lying to you if I said I had no questions after I became a Christian. But the truth is that eight out of every ten questions I had was answered. The moment that I bowed my head and my heart and relinquished whatever claims I had over my own life and believed the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, you've probably all heard the Bible teaches that God loves us and that God wants us to know him. That human beings have sinned against God and that we're separated from God and his love. 
And that that separation leads to only death and judgment. But there's a solution. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. A bridge was built between humanity and God. And only those who personally receive Jesus Christ into their lives trust him to forgive their sins can cross that bridge. Most of you have taken that journey. Perhaps some of you haven't. I would encourage you to do exactly that. You have to decide whether or not you are going to believe the truth claims of Jesus. That he loves you. That he died for you. That he has a plan for you. And here's one of the kickers. That he's willing to reveal that plan to you. As you walk with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we know that in your plan, it was always peace and life. But human beings remain separated from you. But you've given us a remedy, the cross. There's not anything that we have to do other than to believe the truth and receive Jesus. And to walk in humility and confidence that the Bible's true. And that you can be trusted. For many, many people, Lord, I know that they're unwilling or they're reluctant to give up their own plan. But Lord, for that person who is willing. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would extend the invitation. That they would see the sinfulness of their sin. But they would also see the loveliness of forgiveness and grace and mercy that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, again, I pray that you would extend the invitation, that you would touch hearts, that a person who senses your presence would acknowledge your presence and would be willing to commit their life to you. And, Lord, we commit that to you and we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.